What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 42 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. We'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded and pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. Today we're speaking with Oliver Caviglioli. Oliver spent many years as a teacher and principal in a special school and is a world expert on visual teaching strategies. In recent years, he's focused on writing books and running trainings in schools and colleges. Day to day, Oliver spends the majority of his time at his sketchbook and Mac, working out how to best visually communicate educational concepts, processes and theories. Today we're discussing his book, Dual Coding with Teachers. But boy, does the discussion go deeper than that. It was quite a surprise to me where the discussion went, and Oliver shares many ideas and revelations that he's had since he first released the book. For me, this was an immensely exciting discussion, and I had so much fun trying to keep up with Oliver's fast-paced thinking on the interconnections between ideas, images, and the many insights he shared on how to use visuals to help people learn. If you're ready to have your mind expanded, this ERRR episode is for you. And on that topic of minds expanding, I'm happy to share that again this episode, the Eatrilla podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. Once again, John Cat is offering their generous 30% off discount with the code ERRR30, and you may like to use it to snap up Oliver's book, Dual Coding with Teachers, that we discussed today. Or, as I've done, you might like to get your hands on a copy of Teaching Walkthroughs. Teaching Walkthroughs is a collaboration between Oliver and the brilliant Tom Sherrington, in which the two took a vast collection of high-impact teaching strategies and condensed each of them down into a five-panel illustration that is the perfect tool for instructional coaches, school leaders, or really any teacher keen on building a deeper understanding of some of the most effective strategies in teaching. And you'll hear Oliver go into quite a bit of detail about Teaching Walkthroughs in this episode. Some other books from John Cat Educational that you may be interested in are Rosenshine's Principles in Action, Tom Sherrington's other recent book that at one point was charting above Michelle Obama on Amazon's bestseller list, Craig Barton's Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain, Teaching for Mastery by Mark McCourt, and many more. To explore their range and get the 30% off discount, follow the link within the show notes to johncatbookshop.com forward slash books forward slash ERRR and use the code ERRR30 to grab yourself a bargain. And before we commence today's interview, please don't forget to subscribe to emails at ollielovell.com if you're keen to ensure that you never miss a post or podcast. And with that, let's jump straight into episode 42 with Oliver Caviglioli. Oliver Caviglioli, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Hi, Ollie. Great to be here. Looking forward to chatting for well, maybe a couple of hours. Let's see. We'll see what happens. So the first question we ask Oliver is, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Oliver, what is it that you do? What's your answer? For the last couple of years, I've been searching for a way of describing what I do because I, I was a head teacher for 10 years and a number of decades. I was a teacher before that. And I've come up with a term that I was embarrassed to use because it sounds pretentious, but the more I use it, the more I think it's accurate, is that I'm an information designer. So I'm committed to visualizing educational ideas and processes. Indeed, after 
I've led a day's course with teachers. I then go back and they say, can you see, it doesn't seem very preposterous that actually a major task of what teachers do is they're information designers. You need to collect, curate, and then sequence information for optimal learning. And you need to learn how to present it as well. Another question we like to ask at the start, towards the start of an interview, Oliver, is what do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? Wow, that's, I have to give a particular answer to that because other than my first two years in, in mainstream schools, I spent all my life in special schools. So for special school, for me, particularly having a, a grown-up was once a child with special needs, I think the purpose of education for special schools is to maximize the inclusion of children in society so they're active and engaged. And so, strangely, it's very difficult, I think, to judge the effectiveness of a special school by going into a special school. I think the judgment of a special school really should be delayed by the figures that come out from the results of the education by how children engage in society. Mainstream school is completely different. If I talk about mainstream schools briefly, in the late 80s and 90s, I was a real thinking skills zealot. You know, I read everything, did all the courses. And then one day I read a book by a critical philosopher who disabused me of the fundamental delusion of thinking skills proponents, whose thinking is something like this. Let's, and this is mirrored in the current reemergence of 21st century skills, and it's something like this. Let's develop these core skills context-free, and then we can apply them to any or new subject. Whereas actually what I've come to realize, what I came to realize when I read that book, is the content isn't meaningless. It actually shapes your thinking. It's not you. It's not your thinking that shapes the content. It's engaging in the content that shapes your thinking. And then I realized we go all the way back to classical Western liberal education, which is that you engage in a variety of different forms of knowledge, the sciences, mathematics, humanities, etc. Each of those will shape your thinking, the end of which you have a rounded education. And I think when I look at the discourse on the curriculum, I think we're returning to that. Okay. So in terms of the purpose of school-based education, you'd say to provide that rounded exposure to the core knowledge from the various disciplines? Yes. And obviously, and not just that. Okay. Interesting. And if people are interested to hear more about the role of knowledge in learning and particularly reading, they might like to go back to the episode with Natalie Wexler on her book, The Knowledge Gap. And in fact, we will be talking about thinking skills in some upcoming episodes. So it will be interesting to juxtapose some different ideas from different guests. Looking forward to that. The next question I'd like to ask, Oliver, is your book is called, that we're discussing today, a fantastic book, is called Dual Coding with Teachers. What were you hoping to achieve through this book? Well, firstly, I didn't really want to write it because I was, I'd written a couple of books 20 years ago and I was just didn't want to go through that process. It's so difficult. But then as I started doing a bit of training around the country and working on, on Twitter, so to speak, I noticed there weren't any young teachers around who would continue what I was doing if I started retired. My wife's a teacher and she's been retired five years and she keeps asking me, Oliver, why don't you retire? And at that point, I thought the slightly unique combination of background in knowledge that I've acquired is kind of unique. 
because I have a, which I'll tell you a bit more later, but generally you know, I have a graphics background with my father, an architect. I spent nearly all my time in, in special schools and therefore I had a thorough understanding of cognitive psychology and behaviorism. And you put those together and you have a body of knowledge about visual communication, which I think is quite powerful. And all the books, and I, I think I've pretty much got every book I can get my hands on, on, on graphic organizers and visuals in, in education. No one seems to be addressing that mixture. And if I stopped, it would just disappear. It just seemed, I just felt obliged, obliged to capture it in some way. Very good. And, and that's, a, that's a great lead into another question. Could you give us a bit of a history of your career to date? Sure. I, I was of the hippie generation that just found, woke up and found that I was a teacher, you know, with no intent, no purpose, nothing. And I did a couple of years in mainstream schools and I, I quite enjoyed it, but there was something that didn't resonate with me. And I ended up going into special schools, which I kind of, I really, I really loved the way that there was a mixture of organic earthiness problems just manifest themselves so obviously in front of you at the same time there was this science of learning that was going on mainly from america uh, but increasingly in the united kingdom about how to deal with children with special needs and what i found stimulating was as far as i could tell special schools that era not all of them but a lot of them had more qualified staff than mainstream schools because quite simply when learning is difficult you've got to find out how to improve it I, for example, in 1986, was one of the last teachers in England who had a full year seconded paid study. That seems remarkable. So, you know, I lived in luxury and it's kind of it's nourished me ever since. And then eventually uh, came a head teacher. And around 15 years ago, I, I wrote these two books and that led to me leading training, MapWise, and another one, IQ, spelled E-Y-E-Q, trying to be clever and thinking skills, of which there are some useful parts in there. A lot of it I'm really quite embarrassing because I was searching for models with which to explain the phenomenon of why visual communication works. So yes, there are some bits about NLP, et cetera, et cetera. But we'll, we'll kind of skip that. And then I invented a visual way of communicating teaching skills called the how-tos. And then I left my company and I then became independent. And during the course of the time, you'll see what else I've been, I'm up to. Okay. Uh, also, I wanted to hark back. You mentioned before the philosopher that you read that is a value of the idea of thinking skills. Who was that person and what was that book, if listeners are keen to explore that a bit more? It's John E. McPeck, Teaching Critical Thinking. And it is a, a Routledge book, and the date is 1990. Wonderful. Cool. I'll put that in the show notes for listeners if they're keen to, to explore a little bit more. You mentioned before that you didn't really want to go through the process of writing a book again. I mean, I really enjoyed your book because it was a lovely collection of, you know, the images. You had a lot of great quotes that fit really well. The structure was really clear and quite interesting as well. You kind of had a choose your own adventure approach to it as well. I did want to ask, how did you go about, given that you weren't that keen on writing a book, how did you go about collecting and collating the ideas and trying to bring them together in a, in a cohesive way for readers? That's really a great question. Because I've, I've been interested in this for a long, long time, and I've never been satisfied in my searches, both in education and outside of education. Actually, how do people write? How do they collect ideas? 
first of all, I'm going to, I'm going, this is going to be a theme throughout because you've got some questions about this topic later on, but I'm going to have to start it now. When you say collect and curate, the very words are words we use when we're talking about objects. We collect objects and we arrange them. And then we're using these verbs metaphorically. So we don't actually collect ideas. We collect ideas if we think they're objects. So I'm going to go, it can be a major theme, Barbara Tversky is, the mind regards ideas as objects. So that's going to be a major theme throughout. And I'll let you know kind of the theory and the research that backs that audacious statement. So with a book, like most people say, this book took me six months to write, about 20 years, et cetera, you know, that kind of stuff. What I've realized is that thinking totally inside your head is really, really difficult. I don't know many people who can do that without externalizing your thoughts, making them manifest, or as I'm now saying, make them into objects. So for me, the most powerful, so I think the most powerful technology for teaching is a visualizer. The most powerful technology for thinking or writing is a post-it note or a sticky note if you don't want to be commercial. And generally, the smaller it is and the fatter the pen, the better. So you don't write with paragraphs. You just really have to force yourself to find the key words. Having done that, you're really transferring everything that's inside your head, outside your head. So you're faced with an enormous desk. Or a wall. Wall is probably better because as you move around, you can, well, you're physical uh, and you probably get more oxygen in your head, but you externalize everything and you get an enormous mess. So I once made up a little process for thinking that I still find useful. The first is collect. So that's what you say. And then you externalize and then you cull. So there are many ideas which might be the same idea for which you have different words the culling process and then you need to chunk it that's to say to categorize it and then after categorizing it because the world lives in a structure in which words are sequential in nature and paragraphs and chapters you then need to chain it or sequence it so essentially that's what i did and then when you get a, a chapter you then do the same thing you go into more detail you generate more ideas and you, you go through the same process. So I simply do not have the mechanism, the mental mechanism to do all that in my head. And I'm too lazy to try. It's just so effortful. So when I kind of discuss this in, in my training sessions, I would try to give a, a physical, concrete manifestation of it. I, was, I say, if you want to organize everything every single object in your garage and imagine you've got one of those garages that contains everything is it easier to do it if you sit in the living room and you do it virtually your head or you go into the garage and you physically move all the objects so we have some insights and that seems too grand a term we just know how we work best in the world with physical objects increasingly i'm thinking they are exactly the same as thinking and learning. That's fascinating. Is there, I mean, 
you, so then you you talked about like sticky notes on a wall or something like that. Is there something about having the sticky notes on a wall or could you have it on a, a large screen? Like could you use an Excel sheet and chunk ideas into cells and then drag the cells around? Would it be different? Would it be not as good, better? I think it is possible. Alan Watts was a philosopher in the 1960s of the hippie generation and he used to give wonderful analogies. He said, if you're in a darkened room and you've got two sorts of light sources, one is a torch which is illuminates everything in great detail, but it's really thin. So it doesn't illuminate a lot, but what it illuminates is, is really revealing. But as you move it around, you can no longer see what once was illuminated, and you can't see the big picture. Or you have, a, you, you have like a floodlight. It lights the whole room up, but you really can't see anything in any detail. So one of the inherent problems digitally is that screens aren't big enough. So you find people who work in many industries, especially to do with money, they have a whole number of screens because they need to be really efficient and they know instinctively whether they've read the psychology or not. If you just have one screen and you have to click to click to, you know, to find the details behind something, it uses, one, it's not immediate and two, it's mental energy, which is wasted because you needn't waste it in that way. Digital's fine because it does store things incredibly and you can store multimedia things. So that, that's really incredible. So I think there's, like with most things in life, there's pros or cons. Increasing evidence coming for this thing called embodied cognition, which I'll talk about throughout our talk, means that there is a phenomenon of physically moving things that gives you another level of understanding. About 20 years ago, I read an interview with the then head of the British Library, I mean, the biggest in the country. And she said she remembered being an undergraduate in her university library, standing in reception and having a 3D sense of where all the knowledge was organized and how it was organized. And she talked about the young students being digital, maybe not having such an embodied 3D notion of knowledge. And it was when people were talking about hyperlinks and everything, where it takes you everywhere. It's not building a construct which is which has a physical dimension to it. Now, that course may be an older person who wasn't brought up with it being lost in the digital virtual world and needing to have the physical embodied world around her as reference points. You don't you don't believe that though, do you? Because I think I think there's a historical precedent and you know, neurological science more recently tells us yeah. the, the core role of kind of memory palaces and the method of loci and things like that. So you're heading down this route, Oliver, so let's, let's keep going down it. Would you like to expand upon some of these ideas a little bit more, like the relationship between physical places, memory, mapping, images, things like that? I will, but I'm going to take you through what I think is an absolutely fascinating history that I've only read about in specific papers. And it's this, in 1980, a linguist and a philosopher, George Lakoff, the, the linguist, and Mark Johnson, the philosopher, wrote a book together called Metaphors We Live By. And in it, they said, if you examine, by the way, their definition of metaphor isn't limited at all to the general understanding of metaphor as the rhetor grand rhetorical flourishes in literature. Metaphor is anything that's not literal. So I'm going to give you an example later on. If I say Shakespeare 
is central to the canon of English literature. That is purely metaphorical because Shakespeare isn't central. That is a physical spatialization metaphor. Yeah, in fact, even the word in, when you hear the word in, it's a metaphor. The only in is you learned when you were a child and something was inside something. And we learned that. So they developed this. And they had some fascinating examples where they took the driest physics paper and they found that the overwhelming majority of ideas were communicated via metaphor. And you never consider an academic physicist to be using metaphor. So it permeates how we think. We barely think or express our thoughts without metaphor. Now, I went down this route because I knew with increase over the decades, the increasing number of research papers tells us with great assurance that dual coding or visual strategies, we'll discuss the, 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 the parameters of that meaning of dual coding later, are successful. There are some particular exceptions that have got nothing to do with learning styles, but we'll go back to that, that later. But I never found anything satisfactory that explained why it's so successful. So going back to the metaphors we live by, this line of thought starts to explain it. What's remarkable is that this book led to a whole new field of cognitive research. It's been acknowledged that it was the source from which people started creating what is now known as embodied or grounded cognition, which, of course, you know from Sweller's paper he distributed freely on the internet last year, Cognitive Load Theory 20 Years Later. You, you know, and if you think of Cognitive Load Theory and John Sweller himself might be the epitome of the hard-nosed academic laboratory, well, there included something of embodied cognition, which previously used to be with prejudice by, say, secondary traditional teachers to be considered the airy-fairy primary progressive stuff. And there is smack bang in the middle of cognitive load theory. And that journey is really remarkable. So they started exploring embodied cognition. Lakoff and Johnson themselves started working with developmental psychologists. And here's what they come up with. When we're young, and I witnessed this with my grandson over Christmas, he spent all his time dealing with objects in space, and objects included himself. And of the objects he played with, two were predominant. One was the container. So if you think of a child, they're forever putting objects inside containers and taking them out. How many can you put in? Can you hide them? Which is central? Which is peripheral? And then they even managed to put a small container within a bigger container. My daughter, I noticed, put my grandson in a container, as indeed we both are. It's called a room. And at night, she put him in a smaller container within his container, and that was called a cot. He himself puts objects inside his container, which is his body. So the whole world is a container. And later on, uh, it's a typical story to tell because it has, it has a, um, a non-linear way of explaining it. I'd like to link that later on to Aristotle and categorization. The other main model we have is a path. So my son noticed from the moment he woke up, everything is to do with force making movement. 
So he uses force to move himself. Then he's moving these containers full of objects, and they're on wheels, they're a trolley. He's pushing it or pulling it. And a container and a path are called image schemas. Psychologists call them image schemas. They're primitive logic relearned. The term is, and, and these image schemas are always written in capital letters. What's really confusing is they're neither images, they're, ne they're not visual, but at least they're not entirely visual. So psychologists use the word image, as did Alan Paglio, meaning a memory, an idea of an experience in the world. So it's visual because we use our eyes. It's kinesthetic. It's emotional. It's all the aspects of it. Of course, the visual is the most predominant, but it's also kinesthetic. And these become the very foundations of our thinking. The very foundations of our thinking. There are many such metaphors, but these early physical ones, what's called orientational spatialization metaphors, predominate. So let me just give you an example, which I give on my course. For my English audience, I put on what's called an upper class posh voice, which I will now do. I'll say, children. And I asked them before, could I teach this to my children in my special school? So I said, children, I'd like to consider the, the contention that Shakespeare is central in the canon of English literature, whereas that somewhat irascible 60s playwright Joe Orton is a really marginal peripheral figure on the very edges of what we consider to be literature. And you think, some might even argue he is outside of it, an outsider. You think, wow, that's, that's like very complex English literature. And then I go to the board and I draw a circle and in, in, in with a working class, non-academic voice, right, here's a circle. You're either in it or you're out of it. And smack bang in the middle, because we know in the middle he's the boss, you put Shakespeare. So this circle is, is English literature. So André Gide is a great French writer, like Shakespeare is, but he's not English. So he's outside it. So we get in out. And then we get another metaphor called centre periphery. Centre is more important than the periphery. Oh, the very centre. So Shakespeare's in the middle, and this guy, Joe Wharton, he's right on the edge. So I put him right on the very edge, and sometimes I might even draw him just outside. The central figure, a mere peripheral figure. So actually, really, most of the ideas we have are way, way, way simpler than complex language with which we express them. And I could have taught that to children in my severe learning difficulty school, not just moderate learning difficulty, severe learning difficulty school, because they get in out. They get middle on the on the edge. So that's really and 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 so Barbara Tversky is someone who's been in the field of looking at psychology and visuals for four years. By the way, she was the wife of Amos Tversky, who wrote with Kahneman. So, you know, she had I mean he's died, but you know, they obviously had conversations all the time at home. And on the back of her recent book called The Mind in Motion, which is really readable, um, she's got um, praise by Steven Pinker and Kahneman himself. This is not some wacky idea. Now, I'm going to shift sideways, but talk about the same phenomenon, the article that you mentioned, which is in my book and which... Let's pause for a second. Because I think that listeners might benefit at this point for a brief recap of the main points that we're getting into. Because you've you've coloured things with a wonderful amount of hinterland, 
but I, I fear that maybe some of our listeners would love to be brought back to some of the key points. So some of the key things that I've taken, you can tell me if I'm lost myself. Oliver, let's do a check for understanding as all good teachers do. The core idea you've kind of brought us back to time and time again is Barbara Tversky's idea of thoughts are turned into objects. And the ideas are, we regard them as objects. Yes. And so when you were speaking, then you talked about a lot of ideas. You talked about containers and paths as image schemas with the story of your grandson and things like that. My interpretation of your, what you were saying throughout the section was you were talking about different ways that kind of thoughts are turned into objects and these kind of thought objects are used by us to organize our world metaphorically. And perhaps that relates also back to what you were saying before about how you planned your book and how you kind of turned ideas into objects and was able to stick them on the wall and then manipulate them more easily and that reduced the, the kind of cognitive load. And also back again to the example of cleaning out your, your garage. So that's the thread I've managed to grab. Is that where we're hoping listeners are at this point? Yes. Can I briefly go back to how I created my book? Yes. So after finding these ideas and terminology, I realized looking at my book, all I did was I organized the ideas in containers. So small containers live within bigger containers. So I had my big containers were sections. I had seven sections in the book. And each section had smaller containers within it. We're talking about categorization. And then because the book has to go from page one to page two to page three, it is sequential. I had to organize these containers along a path. So my strategy was collect my ideas as objects. And I did that by representing them in post-it notes. I then organized them into containers. And then I sequenced them along a path. And I don't really know how else other people do it. I think they do the same thing, but they do it far more complicatedly inside their head and they don't have the language to explain what they do. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And I mean, what you're doing, what you're doing is you're saying, or what, what I'm hearing you're saying is at the heart of every concept, it can be thought of as being composed of a series of objects or potentially one object. And if we can actually dissect the nature of that object in terms of you know, either a container or a path or a surface potentially or, or some sort of shape. And if we can orient that object in relation to other objects, we can more simply and more clearly understand it and therefore are better empowered to more clearly communicate it to others. Exactly. And in addition, I think that's what everybody does anyway, but they're not aware of it because you only have to look at their language. Can I just, let me just, read something out to you. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a conference and I decided for just a five-minute spell, I would note down all the metaphors, the spatialization metaphors that the speaker used. In a five-minute spell, he used about 30. You're such a nerd, Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> so once you see it, you can't stop but see it. So going back to the cognitive science article what they found was you know we often find out how we work by examining people who don't work so well so with studies into alzheimer's we note that they their memory is shot and they get lost very easily and just for listeners we're now talking about 
the article from Quantum Magazine entitled The Brain Maps Out Ideas and Memories Like Spaces, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah. The original study for this, by the way, got a Nobel Prize. So it kind of has got a real heavy acknowledgement. They dis I don't know whether the word discovered is the correct word, but there's a, the entorhinal cortex, which is near the hippocampus, is the place where they identified both grid cells and place cells. Uh, these are these are these hexagons that seem to be almost invisibly projected onto the world. And when you walk, it's noted in your entorhinal cortex. So you create a, a cognitive map of where you are. And this very mechanism, there, there's a growing agreement, might well be the self-same mechanism with which we, and now I'm turning to ideas as objects, we map out, store, place, and organize the ideas we have. And I have to say it as if they were objects in space. So it's no coincidence we use such an abundance of spatial metaphors in part of, the subcomponent of, consist of, the area, the dimension, the periphery. They're all, they're all space. They're all space. So I jokingly say that Captain Kirk in Star Trek got it wrong. Space is our first frontier. And we can never transcend it. We can never transcend it and our language. So just wanted to say that I I create diagrams of what people say. So I've also illustrated many books of some eminent educational thinkers. And some people get surprised by how easily I'm able to depict their thoughts in diagrammatic form. So I'm now back to disabuse people of this idea that I have a particular ability. All I do, and it's all I do, is I listen to their spatial metaphors. That's all I do. And they give the game away. So if you'd heard, if you were going to a lecture on English literature, you had to take notes that was going to be made public. Someone was saying, Shakespeare's central to the canon of England, you know, and I'm going to that. You'd be going, wow, that's really complicated. But it's, it's really easy. The canon is just a container. It doesn't matter how fancy the word is. You're either in it or you're out of it. You know, it's a, it's a Venn diagram. It's a Euler diagram. That's, that's amazing. So here's an activity that I think would be interesting at this point to explore. You know, you, you, could, you could show a group of people a complicated talk, get them to listen to it, try to make sense of it, and then teach them this idea that what they can be doing is your, your trick in inverted commas or your strategy, which is yeah, to yeah. listen to the metaphors and then to try to deconstruct it based upon that. Have you done that with people, that kind of activity? Yes, the closest I've done it is I have to talk you through a process. With, on my course, I teach them the container and path. I also tell them you can organize graphic organizing into four main bodies of way of organizing them. And I've got a table in my book which shows you that I'm not unique in the way I've, I've organized it. You know, for the last few decades, people from different continents have organized it in the same way. So when I look at a container, we're talking about things. We're either looking at one thing, so we define it. Or we look at several things and then we compare them. So there are two groups of graphic organizers. When we look at a path, there's movement, something happens, then we either look at it from a temporal point of view, time, so we have flow charts and sequence, or we look to 
look a bit deeper to find out of any underlying causes. So then you have cause and effect. So you have four types of graphic organizer subdivided under either container or path. So I, I present teachers with four questions. So we'll just look at one of them, first of all. And I give them, I ask them for a three-part answer. I ask them to read the question and tell me which words, this is hard for them because they understand the question intuitively. I ask them to go put almost slow motion on their mind and identify the trigger words, which give the game away. So the first question is, what exactly is the coronavirus? So they have to tell me, one, what are the key word or words? Secondly, does it lead you to either be a container or a path? Thinking, and then of either of which, which are the two graphic organizers? And they get it. So they'll go, what exactly is the coronavirus? The word what and is means I'm defining. So, so it's, the word what and is is the first part of my answer. Second part is a container. It's a, that's the sort of knowledge we want is container. And then I'm not looking at two objects and comparing them. It's just the one. So we're defining, looking at whole part relationships. So it's de defining. And then I'd say something like, in what way is coronavirus and SARS similar? And they're going, keyword similar. So I've got coronavirus on one hand, I've got SARS on the other. So that's a container. Actually, there's two overlapping containers, which is a Venn diagram. And then we're looking at similarities and differences. While we're talking, I just want to give you a few examples of why we have these image schemas are so entrenched. No one taught us it, but we know their rules. So, for example, in special needs schools, they have a sign language. I'm now doing something that you can see, but the audience can't see, is I'm getting two fingers that are apart and I'm putting them together. And that, that sign indicates the same. So at a very early age, we learned the principle that proximity equals similarity. Yeah, I would have thought that that's like it's the fact that they are identical to each other, the two forefingers, rather than the fact that they're next to each other. No, because they come together. They don't have them apart because they come. Yeah, I guess apart would mean separate or it would mean different, actually. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, I mean, I'll give you another one before I move on. So during the course of the day, for some reason, in one of the exercises, I ask, I say, I'm going to give you two mental states and I gesture horizontally. So one is happy and one is depressed. If I were to force you to rank them vertically or place them vertically, which would be above and which would be below, happy or depressed? Everyone says, well, obviously, happy is up and depressed is down. And I ask them, who taught you that? Who taught you that? So very early on, when we pour water into a container, we notice that when you have more water, it's higher. So we naturally absorb, a, we learn a principle that more is up. So you'll go home and you'll switch the news on, and particularly now, it's say, oh, the Dow Jones index is down. And you'll know what down means. Uh, going back to states, there's happy and there's depressed, and there's one even lower than depressed. It starts with D, and it awaits us all. Well, transcendence, the very word transcendence, and godliness and, and ethical superiority is higher. So it's these abundant principles based on our physical experience that shape our, our concepts.
and they've they've all come together to be to be the first coherent argument as to why visuals are effective. And I need to correct myself now. I'll make a distinction between visual and visuospatial. So I now make clear that I, I think dual coding theory has two stories. The first goal is very simple, and it's the one that Pivio worked on for four decades and tried to break, which is that there are two channels, one verbal and one nonverbal, which is basically the image, but of course the visuals predominate. So it's been it's been termed and slightly inaccurately visual. Because visual predominates. But I've got a quote of his, which is really along the same lines about visual. You know, from early on in our development, we have these um, sensory ideas about the world that we never lose. So he was onto the same thing as all the others. Of course, the visuals predominate. And so we have two channels, visual, imagery, visual, and verbal. And when they combine, they have, as Paul Kirsch, Professor Paul Kirshner says, he calls it double-barreled learning because it gets encoded twice, thus the word dual coding. So it's a double memory trace, so it doubles the chance of it being retrieved. And Paivio really tried to break his theory over four decades and didn't manage it, so it's incredibly robust. And in his latter years, he included what he discovered of neuroscience. But at the same time, he only ever worked with cognitively unchallenging material. Really simple words. So up to a point that's useful when kids have to learn stuff off by heart. He never researched, but he did write in his 1990 book, Mental Representations, that the structure of verbal and visual, and when I say visual, it means imagery, which is more than just visual, is different. Verbal information is sequential. And therefore, it is cognitively more challenging to deal with sequential information because its, its meaning is created through syntax or grammar, in which we can split things that should be physically close together in time or space with grammar. It's really cognitively challenging. Visual information is nonlinear. And therefore, it's processed differently. The significance is processed differently. And he used these strange words, it's processed simultaneously or synchronously. So when you look at a diagram, you see all the parts in one go. So the visual part is really crucial. Now, the second part of his story, which, is, which he didn't research, was research. And the first paper I know of in 1987 was by Larkin and Simon in which is something like a, an image worth 10,000 words, brackets, sometimes. And they came up with what they call the visual arguments, where they compared two groups were given a piece of text and the other were given a, a, a well-formed diagram, and those given a well-formed diagram performed much better in terms of comprehension and retention. And he explained it by saying the diagrams are more computationally efficient. Actually, that's not much of an explanation. It's, it's, it's a conclusion. Because they were more effective, by definition, it's more computationally more efficient. And he says that the information is more easily extracted and inferences are more easily made, almost intuitively made. But it doesn't fully give the answer. And so the answer, I think, lies in the fact that, and I met someone who did this a month ago, children or people with no or no sight can be given a diagram that has been drawn and put through an embossing machine. 
with their hands then they can access the non-linear spatial arrangement of items they can arrive at the same understanding as we do but of course so the visual part in a way is only a means whereby it makes it a lot easier and probably more accurate but if we concentrate only on the visual i think we fail to understand why visuals and graphic organizers work visuals and graphic organizers work not because they're visual it's because they're spatial it's because they're spatial and then that links and what the space contains are objects where we have we naturally know so there's a whole field of psychology which i'm not going to go into but i just mentioned in the 1930s of gestalt psychology gestalt psychology says that we learn from an early years that proximity equals similarity so we know when objects are grouped together on any diagram they're more likely to be similar to an object that's on the other side of the paper have these bundle of of primitive logic which we learn from our experience of ourselves and objects in space which are continually there which is the very foundation of our abstract thinking and so whilst diagrams represent that obviously i've come to the conclusion that when you listen to a teacher teach what they're fundamentally doing seems to me is they're speaking diagrams can you see yeah and so listening to a diagram that's only described with words is something clever people can do and it's a marvelous intellectual feat boy it's a lot easier if you can see the diagram and that to me starts to unpick why exactly graphic organizing in particular but any any such visual it's their spatial arrangements that represent and with their connections Okay, cool. Well, let me let me try to recap another check for understanding for Ollie. Let me try to recap. So, just then you were speaking about dual coding and you were saying that dual coding is the traditional story told for why dual coding works and dual coding is basically presenting images and words at the same time, words that reach you through your ears, not through your eyes. Images and words at the same time is because they access the brain through two channels and you get this kind of dual dual coding thing going on. Yeah, can I just correct one thing? Please, please do. Words can be visual because we sub-vocalize. Yep. Oh, the words can be visual. Yeah, so that's why the practice is not to read out your PowerPoint slides because although your speaking is auditory, the audience are visual because they're reading it, but in reading it, in reading it visually, they sub-vocalize. So they occupy an auditory channel. Yep, yep, yep. The redundancy, yes. Okay, so the traditional story has been that presenting an image and spoken words associated with that image codes the information more securely in memory because it goes via these two channels. And you're saying that that's one story and that makes sense and that's correct, but there's also this other story, which is why images and dual coding work really well, and that's because information is intrinsically spatial or we have primitive logic that associates ideas with space and images can help to more clearly show those relationships in space by simply showing them rather than expecting people to dissect words. Exactly. Whether this second story can be, with high fidelity, be called dual coding is, is, is debatable. And I'd, I'd surrender if someone says, that's Hydro pointed out these different structures. He didn't research it. 
you can't call that dual coding. I say, fine, you know, I don't think it's important. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I guess we're talking about reasons why images help. It would be a simple way to put it. Okay. I wanted to come back to the idea of the, the image scheme. As you've talked about two containers and paths. Are there some other ones that are, that are important? Well, we learn up is more. We learn central peripheral. They tend to be spatialization metaphors. There's a whole host of other metaphors. So, you know, argument is war. You win an argument. You, you rally your arguments together. We have knowledge is food. It's nourishing. There's a whole, I could, we could talk forever about the metaphors we use. But after this podcast and you read or you listen to people, you'll go, ah, 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 you'll get, you'll, you'll, you'll get enlightenments all the time that we just speak metaphors. Totally. What I'm interested in here, well, I'm most interested in lots of things, but one of the key things is, you know, the insight that ideas can be dissected into their constituent parts, which can be thought of as objects which have locations in space and various orientations and relationships with other objects. Exactly. So there's this key idea. Now, for me, the core question for teachers then is, how do I take the concept that I'm trying to teach and how do I dissect it in terms of these components and then present those components to students in such a way that I make the information more accessible than if I hadn't done this spatial slash diagrammatic decomposition. You've mentioned that we can talk about or we can pay attention to the visual metaphors that are used in language when the idea is presented. Is that enough? Is that enough to, to do this? Are there, are there other ways to do this? Is this how teachers should be approaching teaching new concepts? Tell us more. I don't know. From what I've read, this is quite a new field. I've got a paper in which there's one strategy in which the author is, is suggesting a process for visual communicators to go through. And it's pretty much what I've said here. It's a container or path. So I would look at the language they're using, and they're fundamentally using a container or a path. There are some visual, some graphic organizers which have both a container and a path together, and they're really powerful. And then what I really want to make sure is that people don't misunderstand this as being images in a fight against words. So... After you create such a diagram and you present it in incremental ways so you don't spoil your efforts by overloading the learners with a complex diagram, which I'll go back to your diagram for John Sweller, it should be that your students will be far more able to understand the complex language because you're coming from meaning as opposed to trying to search for meaning in the words. You'll understand why such words and their combinations are used, given that you're coming from an understanding of the meaning. Okay. Now, what you're talking about right now relates very, very much to one of the, the very practical classroom strategies that you talk about in your book, which is switch modes, which relates to the idea of conjoint retention. So maybe, maybe now is a good break to have, like, let's call it a, a practical break and step out of the, the theoretical realm. And, and could you tell us about this idea of, of switch modes as an activity and talk us through how a teacher can walk students through this activity, which is switch modes, and how that, that helps them to make the link between the written representation of information and the visual representation? Well, first off, it can go either way. It, it can go either way. So 
I'm going to start with a way which isn't normally used, which is to start with a diagram. Ruth Clark and Lyons wrote a book, The Graphics for Learning, which is a 500-page tome on the research. It's, it's wonderful. They have one quote which said, visuals ignored don't teach. So I think one of the mistakes teachers might make is they spend a long time developing their ability to create a diagram and they create a great diagram and they put it on PowerPoint and we'll go into the design principles later. And then they don't, they don't exploit all their hours of effort. So once you've got a diagram, you need to teach children how to read a diagram. Because some of the children do need to be taught how to read a diagram. This isn't learning styles, but there are differences in our spatial abilities. Now, that doesn't mean one can't learn to think spatially, but children can be taught to think spatially if when you are building a diagram up, and it's quite important not to give students a completed diagram straight away if it's, if it's past the level of complexity that you know they could handle straight away. So you build it up gradually. And then you not only describe the content, you describe why you organise the content in the way you organised it, and how that is represented spatially. So I'll be talking, I might, I might be discussing, or I have no idea, let's talk about sports, two particular sports people. You say, well, I'm going to put them quite close together because this is what unites them. This is what things are having similar. So they have this particular ability. Can you see that when you put things together, close together, you automatically think they're more similar than if they were further apart. So you describe everything like that. So you describe what you think may be unnecessarily because it's so obvious to you i think it's necessary in being able to explain a diagram at the same time you could say now i could have done it this way but i think that would be more confusing so this way so you describe that and then you're basically your your you're teaching how a diagram is formed um and then the actual any activities you can do would be simply you know explain the diagram to a partner uh, with that that may be a good process by which they could later write about that diagram, use a, use a diagram as a structure. So, so you might get them to describe the diagram, then ask them to discuss what order did you do the discussion? Why did you do it in that particular order? So now have a discussion, what might be the most efficient order in which you could discuss it? So then they would number the different parts of the diagram and say, right, now you've practiced it in that order speaking, now write about it, use that diagram as your writing plan. Okay. And, and I mean, something that jumped out at me in this terms of this switch modes activity. So if, if I could summarize my understanding of it, it was you present a, either an image or text first, you explicitly make the connections between the image and the text progressively, sequentially, so the students don't get overloaded. And then you either present up another similar image or another similar passage of text, and you get the students to construct the image or the text that's associated with what you've presented and so and so they're kind of making their this it's kind of relates to what you were saying about teaching them how to read the diagram they're working out how an image can be represented in words and how words can be represented in an image and and more intrinsically understand the connections between the two a halfway house might be one in which you you do all that and then you present a diagram with say half a dozen of the elements missing and they can tell it's missing because you've got a particular box. And then down below, this is multiple choice. 
Well, you either have nothing down below in which they have to find the missing words in the text. For sudden, they're analysing the text with a different level of intention and purpose than otherwise they might do. Or you put 10 words at the bottom, and obviously, you know, all should be plausible answers, and then they have to find the word to put it in there. So you're checking their understanding that way as well. Yeah, so you, it's kind of like a completion problem with an incomplete yes. concept map, and you present some, some words that students have to add. Okay, cool. All right. And, and by doing that, um, I don't know whether you've ever any Jeff Petty. I have not. Jeff Petty wrote England's first evidence-based teaching book in 2000, so he was ahead of the game. And he did something called assertive questioning. So if you're in my class and you did a particular, you chose a particular word, so you would get a word, an arrow, and another word, I would say, explain why that word works. Tell me the reasoning. So give me that chunk. This becomes this because so-and-so. Explain that reasoning. Then I'd say, thank you. I would then ask anyone in the class who had a different, chosen a different word. And I would say, now explain your particular chunk of the diagram. What does that mean? Use words to explain it. And then I'd ask a third person and say, you've had two different words with two different explanations. Which of those two would you choose and why? Mm. And then I'd ask the whole class, during which I would not give any hint as to whether which of the any options were correct. So it's a way to elicit, well, one, it's a way to make people think and they have to justify their thinking. And they're not doing it by trying to please teacher because there's no way they could tell by my words or gestures which is correct. Okay, cool. That makes sense. I would love to go through a few more examples of this kind of idea of dissecting things that we're teaching into images. We hit a web of theory. I think we're coming up because I tell this, the teachers on my course, this is going to sound really weird and really complicated. The outcome is so practical. Bear with me. Wait. Cool. That, no, that's great. Cool. So, yeah, let's, let's, pull, let's pull those practical outcomes a little bit more now because I would love to do maybe a little bit of I think what would really help me and probably listeners as well is for us to think about some concepts that we might, we might want to teach students and to just kind of on the fly try to work out how a visual representation could help. So, I don't know, one, one concept that comes to mind right now is Judy Hotchman and Natalie Wexler's idea of, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the, the sentence starters, because, but, and so. Have you come across these ones? No, I, I, I don't know either of the people, so... Give me a quick lesson. Okay. By the way, better be handicapped because we can't see any visuals, but carry on. That's okay. We can, no, we can talk through it. So, so basically, Hockman and Wexler wrote a fantastic book called The Writing Revolution, which is taking the world by storm. I had Judy on the podcast. You would have heard about the book, I, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, I had Judy on the podcast. Absolutely fantastic guest, one of the most popular episodes. They've got this really powerful exercise, which, which does two things at the same time. Number one, it helps people to understand the function of the words because, but, and so. And two, it helps students to understand relationships between ideas through the grammar of the words because, but, and so. So, for example, you could get, if you're doing an analysis of a film and you're trying to get students to kind of pull apart some of the components of it, you could give them the following sentence stems. The critic thought that the film was good because... The critic thought that the film was good, but, and the critic thought the film was good, so. And you get students to talk through these and come up with and complete each of these sentences, and it helps them to understand the function of the three words, and it also helps them to 
understand some of the key ideas within the film and some of the limitations of the film, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how would we dissect this idea and use visual representations to further enhance students' understanding of the words because, but, and so, and of the ideas within the film? Okay, immediately when I saw that, my, my mind went to some of the, I think, limiting graphic organisers you often get in American books. Basically, you just ask kids to fill in boxes. And I think that's very limited capacity. So before I would approach this dynamic, I would want to know, you first of all need to understand what concepts are being produced. So there are certain ideas, and then we, in this particular way, we then relate the ideas as being a, a subordinate or a reason for a justification of, you know, because, but, so. But what is it that we are di dissecting? So there'll be a concept which has been judged within the dynamic, balanced around the word because, but, and so. I'll come, I'll come back to because, but, and so. But because, but, and so are playing with ideas. So there is content. So first of all, I would use graphic organizers to make sure that the students knew, had an understanding of what these ideas were. Yeah, it's interesting because I would have thought that the, 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 the words because, but, and so intrinsically have some kind of spatial representation that that can be drawn out i've got a, i've got a few ideas myself but i'm sure i've There's sure no some conventions i know but there is there is an australian program maybe 20 years old that i have in my library which looks at it's called something got rational in there where there is a visual protocol with which to deal with such dynamics but i don't think they're generally known in the world as being an agreed visual protocol but we could invent them so if i were to invent one tell me your invention you you have an idea straight away okay well i guess because to me is causality so there'd be some of some sort of arrow or perhaps a fishbone diagram which you talked about in your book yeah that'd be a because i would have thought a, a but would be spatial so we'd we want to show that two ideas are quite different so perhaps just representing them you know, in different locations or with some space between them could be a but. And so, again, that seems to me to be quite causal. So that would be, again, an arrow or a fishbone diagram, but the location of the original statement would, would be in a different spot because in one case it's the cause, in which case it would be part of the bone, or and in one case it's, it is the outcome, therefore it will be at the head of the fish. Yeah, I've done something similar. So... With a butt, I just have a, a barrier or possibly an arrow going backwards, which is the same notion you'd have in a force field analysis. You know, force and that, yeah, so that would be a butt. Uh, because and so, in some ways, so is an arrow going forward because it's a conclusion, it's the next thing. But um, so I, I would probably have but with a, a barrier, and I would have because with an arrow going backwards because you're looking at the antecedent. Um, so the main point I would say is that we've devised three little icons for which we could easily get, with which we easily got agreement because we understand from a childhood the notion of path. There are some things in our way, some things in our way that hinder us, which is a but. 
we have a, a force so we know the trajectory of the object that we're pushing which is the so because we know whence it comes what caused it so we can get very act but if you go down to our physical experiences that's i'm arguing from our experience that's why we really soon got to and without seeing anything we got to the idea of a backward arrow for because antecedent but is a barrier a straight line and so is the is the consequent next sequential step inevitable variable consequence of yep okay so they're there otherwise how could you explain that we came to such a quicker agreement yeah yeah indeed and now i guess i guess the question the next question is to what extent would these visual representations help students to grasp the concepts do you think well i think some children don't need to so i'm i'm not a zealot you know i mean i actually like words more than images personally so, so you know so i think the worst thing now that is a surprising statement coming from you oliver i must say i only like pretty images yes okay so in fact i think what i want to say here's what i want to say overall for me the purpose of diagrams and visuals is to increase the capacity to understand love and use words let's dig a bit deeper why is that why are words important words have more nuance they can do more they're more gymnastic they're more evocative whole number of things you know i'm not a wordsmith and i not a linguist but they do so much more words can do so many things in one sentence you know i know diagrams can do this but in the real world an elephant and a whale are very rarely if ever side by side you create the concept of mammal and all of a sudden you transcend time and place and they're right there together because you group them together in the sentence through the concept mammal so they tra- so while the image scheme is about our experience which is really useful and it's primitive and, and and primary our mind can transcend our physical experience we can transcend time and place we can put things together and language does that now you, of course you can draw things like that but i think it doesn't do it as much as language does and it because you can't see it you conjure up stronger imagery inside your mind so that's why i think for me la- the other thing which has been explained why novels were so incredible that films can never really duplicate is they can describe the interior man's internal world in the way imagery can't interesting interesting now I was confused before when you talked about the exciting part of words because I was trying how words are exciting because I was trying to link that back to your idea about Barbara Tversky's idea of turning thoughts into objects and I was thinking words are simply and I'll, I'll go on with this but words are simply this is my initial thought words are simply a way for us to access and communicate thoughts right a tag a description yeah that's right they're a tag to a thought or a, or a way to access and communicate a thought and then I link that back to your idea or the idea that you've communicated throughout here that thoughts are essentially objects or what we do is we turn thoughts into objects. And then I thought but objects following your argument in much of this podcast is objects are better communicated through images. So we actually create 
a kind of a circle here where the words represent thoughts which turn into objects which are represented by images which we can describe with words. And therefore, I ask myself, well, if if words are just a way to access thoughts, which therefore give us access to objects and which are better represented by images, how could it be possible that you liked words more than images as they seem to be part of the same the same kind of cycle? But then I, I, I think I with your mammal example, what I took from that was what words actually enable us to do is they enable us to create new objects which don't exist like obviously in the external world. And so their words are actually our ticket to new containers, if you like. And in this way, they can enable us to expand beyond spaces that the visual realm would allow us to expand with to without words. Yes, yes, indeed. All thought is a metaphoric. So those thoughts that don't that can't be represented visually. And for me, I want to consider what visual in, in classrooms, what visuals do is they they ensure as best as I can understand access to everybody to the idea. I can't imagine any situation where I couldn't explain an idea to a child with a visual. So everyone's in at the party. From there, once you, so in, in some way they're a shop window. Then once you get through the shop window and you're in the shop, then you can use all the language that you need. And you get more, you get finer distinctions and use, and then you can see, you can see why we have the words and language that we have, because it fine tunes, elaborates, it details, it argues, in a way that diagrams can't. They give you the gist. Sometimes the gist is very elegant and they can be very profound. I mean, you know, when scientists get together and they sketch up, you know, you need all the language around it to really explain the details and consequences and 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 whatever. But the gist comes when everyone agrees by looking at, at a diagram. Okay. Which relates back to your idea before when you talked about Adam or Alan Watts and the idea of maybe perhaps diagrams give us the the floodlight and words give us the the laser beam. Excellent. Yes. Yes. Nice way of putting it. Yes. 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 So it's an interesting relationship. It is an interesting and a complementary one. What are the drawbacks of visual representations? Well, I'm I'm aware of Richard E. Mayer's work that Swellers used with regard it being a diversion. Little learning happens a distraction. So. Certainly, when I look at the work that teachers do, before I teach them, in, 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 no, you can see the transformation is unbelievable. And that's the proudest thing I've done. I think I started a, a revolution in the complete transformation in teachers' ability to use graphic principles to really effectively create diagrams. Prior to having any knowledge, and why would they have that knowledge? Because no one's ever taught them. In their, there's such good, enthusiastic, keen people that they invariably go down an argument which is more is better. Colours, more diagrams, more words, more everything is, is better. And so they spoil everything until they know how else to organise their work. So, yeah, so diagrams can be off-putting, overloading, distraction. Okay, in that context, what are, what are some of the, the biggest mistakes that you see teachers make before you teach them, Oliver? Well, 
I could show you my library full of design books. And, you know, my father, gave, being an architect, he gave me daily sermons on good taste. Architects are like that. They're telling you what wrong color shoes you've got, your stool's the wrong height, everything. And I've even got a book, which is really good by Robin Williams, called Design for Non-Designers. And I still think it's too complicated. So I don't know what's happening in Australia, but at the moment in England, we have this thing called whole class feedback. So instead of doing all these individual marking, you look at what generally the misconceptions that the class has. So what I'm about to give is a class, whole class feedback for the English teaching profession. And I got four principles from it. I wanted to have principles which are really easily understood. Uh, the first of which is cut. It's a one-word design, cut. Um, this more or less aligns with Richard E. Mayer's coherence principle, which is don't put stuff in that's irrelevant. So I think it's the most easily understood. It's the most easily executed and has the biggest impact. So teachers generally put too much on their slides, too much on their documents, too much on their display boards. So just that will have an enormous impact. Oh, just to pause there, there's a mistake that can be made there as well, though, which is if we kind of make sure there's not much on each slide, we can fall prey to the transient information effect, whereby you've got some key information on the first slide and you leave other stuff off because you're cutting, but then you just make more slides. And on the next slide, you have one more sentence. On the next slide, you have one more sentence. And the students struggle to keep all the core information in working memory at the same time. Has people fallen down this rabbit hole when you give them this advice? Excellent. Identified. Yeah. So what I'm finding really interesting is that, and Barbara Traversky says this, for every principle of psychology, there's a cost and a payoff. So, so for example, children with special needs or who aren't academically able need to have things task analyzed, broken down. So if I'm teaching you and all the other children can do with a three-step instruction or three-step explanation, and it's too much for you, I break it up into 12 steps. You need it broken down that fine. But the very person who needs it broken down that fine get overwhelmed with, with, with 12 steps. I sure do. Okay, so that to me, so for education, for me, what I see in educational psychology is I don't really read anyone who joins it all up together. So you're identifying that is perfect. That's a really valid point that often, Things that are supposedly good for someone have a has a real negative effect. So this is something that I have to play with all the time. There's no perfect answer. What I would do in this particular instance, I would have one sentence. Say you've got a sequence of six sentences. I would have the first sentence in the middle of slide one. Then slide two, that first sentence now goes to the top of the slide and is grey. Second sentence is in the middle, and it's black. So we know the first sentence, but it's it goes in the background because grey is you know figure grand notion, whereas the the only sentence is perhaps it's slightly smaller as well. So slightly smaller and grey, and then the the main sentence, the only sentence which we look at is black and and bigger. Then the third one, one and two goes grey and slot up to the top. So that way you're able to have a compromise. Everything's a compromise. Compromise between Keeping all the sequence in view at one time, you're, so it's you know the segmenting principle. Basically, the segmenting principle meets transient information. Mm -hmm. yep. So Richard Mayer, he does talk about it a little bit, but he, they're two directly conflicting principles. 
So you have to find ways to do it. I also do it on my PowerPoint, and it's nothing more elaborate. We often have these solutions in front of our eyes. We don't notice them. When you buy things online, the actual purchasing process, it might be a five-step process. Really good websites, what you see is five bubbles, one, two, three, four, five, and the one you're on is colored dark. So you always know where you are, where you've been, and where you're going. You always know that in navigation. So that would be another mechanism I would use on slides. So you have to find some graphic systems to get by the inherent difficulty in dealing with the downside of a positive principle. Brilliant. You notice that. That's exactly so. And you use that in your book, in fact, that kind of the the dots along the top of the page in, in the chapters to show you know, which section of the chapter you were in. And I did find that very helpful because at times I'd get deep into the theory and I'd be like, where am I in this chapter? And I'd just glance up to the top and go, oh, that's where I am. So that was really helpful. Oh, that's great. Because it's something I thought was clever, but it may be but useless. <laughs> so it's useful. It's really great to know that someone has used it. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's the first principle, cut. What's the next one? Chunk. So to organise is to create meaning. You can't really create... To, the way you create meaning is to organize. Otherwise, you get just discrete load of things. So when writers make notes for their writing, either physically or in their head, they group things together. And then generally, when they write, they get rid of all that scaffold. So the reader has to do all the, all the damn work. So I'm really for... For children, certainly, I'd almost have a title for every paragraph or at least an emboldened topic sentence. In fact, one of the books I wrote 20 years ago, I thought I was very clever in doing something. No one ever noticed it. I, I still think it's quite clever. Every paragraph had a topic sentence in bold. And I wrote it such that you could, so to speak, jump from topic sentence to topic sentence was itself a narrative. So, and then you could go back and then read the details afterwards. So there needs to be some mechanism whereby you can scan and get the idea before you read the detail. This happens more or less, and it has done incrementally so, when you design things on a web. Because you know you only got the reader's attention for a few seconds, so that forces people to, to it's almost like having a market. You wouldn't have a market, you would have a market with, Bananas, come and get your whatever. So I think that's what the page should do. So before you read any detail, just by scanning, you have an idea. So that's by chunking up. And there are graphic mechanisms you can do for that, which we don't necessarily go into. The third one is align, align. So every piece of professional graphic works you see has been created with a grid. It's invisible to you, but it's visible to the person making it. So the eye is looking for pattern and order all the time. Columns, images should all line up. So one of the reasons why the teachers have made such an incredible breakthrough in their visual presentations has coincided with the fact that PowerPoint over the years has been copying Apple's keynote very successfully. It's at a point now where you can have guides and you can create your own grid. So it, it will make an unbelievable difference to all your work. Once you see a grid, you know, and I, 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 there's something called the, the Weekly Guardian. There are other magazines I show on my screen. I show it, Norman. You can't see anything. 
although in front of your eyes. I make it, I make it transparent, then I show the grid format. I can see it. So, for example, with my book, I copied the seven grid format in the Guardian Weekly. There's seven columns. So, my book, every single page has got seven has got seven columns, but you don't see the seven column grid. For the most part, I use a double column for text. So three double columns and one single column, which looks like a half column, which is blank, in which it makes the page breathe. And I might put one of those quotes with a little picture on. But so every page isn't identical. Sometimes I use three of those columns. I use two, three columns and one's column. So it gives you all the variety, but there's underlying consistency. And the eye is just looking for that. So every time you look at a page, you don't have to say, right, how do I read this page? The logic of it is evident to you. Yeah, so you line things up. And the last one is just restrain. Just restrain yourself. So I have one image which I got from Google, and I, I'd really like to apologize to the teacher because I mock it, although I know she must have, or he must have spent ages creating it, in which the patterned background and then there's six boxes, each of which is titled with a different fancy decorative font. You know, the type of fonts that are elaborate, they use different ones for each. Each cell of these boxes is saturated with a color, and there's black ink on black text on top, so you can barely read it. it it's just far too much. And then in my course, what I do, I have a, we really learn with comparison. So each of these, these attributes, or, or guides rather, I have a before and an after. So with, with cut, I have a typical text. I could do it with a slide. And then I show it's like when you when you dissect it and cut it and give breathing space. Similarly so for all the other attributes. And all of a sudden you just see it straight away. Yeah, and you did that beautifully in your book as well. Some really great examples of, of how things come to life. Some examples there, yeah. Dear listeners, a quick reminder that those who have signed up as patrons receive a summary of my takeaways from each episode. This month, you'll receive my summary of the diverse and mind-boggling ideas that Oliver has shared throughout this episode, as well as a little more detail on some of the practical strategies in Oliver's book that we didn't quite have time to discuss in the show. Additionally, when we jump back into the episode, you'll hear Oliver give some feedback on some of my lesson notes that I sent him in advance in order to get his thoughts. However, there is a portion of the interview that we cut out, and that's for the simple fact that it really made no sense without the images right in front of you to complement it. This portion of the interview, the images associated with it, and Oliver's feedback on how the diagrams can be improved is something that I'll also share with patrons this month. In order to receive this monthly summary, please go to patreon.com forward slash ERR to support the show. Whether you donate as little as $1 per month or the average patron donation of $5, I'd be immensely grateful for your help in keeping the e podcast sustainable for the long term. Please enjoy the rest of the show. So this is how I format every single one of my physics lessons and also my maths lessons, right? So if you have advice on how to improve this, and I'll make the document available to readers so they can see the horrible mistakes I've made as well, you know, you would be creating a benefit for my students that is constant and compounding over time. But yeah, I'd love your thoughts. Okay, the first thing I want to say is something which is really great, and it's become a bit of an obsession of mine, and you hasn't really got anything to do with dual coding, is that in exploring the non-educational world of world of editorial design, which is the knowledge that people in the industry of newspapers and magazines have found out works, 
they've found that the most powerful aspect of a page or a slide of a screen is something called the Stanford sentence. Okay. Stanford sentence is defined as a pithy pitch. A pithy pitch. And it lives between the title of the article and the article. And it's a really a short, pithy introduction, overview of what's happened. If you read it, you get the general gist straight away. So what I like about your first indentation, when power is transmitted over long distances, the main goal is that power losses are minimized. So I very rarely see these in education. What I see is very complex, arcane language. So I'm now going to talk about, have you ever read any, sorry for blaming on the Americans, some kind of textbooks where they'll say something, and I'm going to read in a very dull, stultifying voice, which says, in this chapter, we will cover the following points, boom, 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 at the end of which you'll be able to, boom, boom, boom. You know, it means nothing. It may mean something after I've read it and learnt it, but it's too comprehensive, too dull. And if you read something like that, if you read such an introduction in a magazine, you know where you'd ever read the, mag- the magazine article. So, whereas you're writing more like a journalist, short, punchy, the only technical words you need, if you really need it, otherwise you wouldn't use technical words, so you get the meaning first. And then we'll try to be right, more academic about the language later. So they're, they're brilliant. I'd make them stand out more. I'd actually have them, I'd make them either bigger or bolder. I don't think the italic does it justice. I think they're the best part there. So I'm a science person. That's, I want to know, I want to know what it's about. I'm dying to know what it's about first. If you tell me this and this and this, and at the end of which I'll know what it's about, you've lost me. I want to know what happens first. So I've now recently begun to realize why I think Stand First is so good. They are David Orsi Bell's advanced organizer. David Orsi Bell? Yep, prior knowledge. Yeah, luckily, Paul Kirshner's in the middle of reviving him. But his advanced organizers, I mean, the graphic advanced organizer was the birth of the graphic organizer kind of officially, formally. But there are other forms of advanced organizer. One is, Marzano calls it an expository organizer. In other words, you explain something. And I think your stand first, a a good stand first sentence is a perfectly pithy expository advanced organizer. But notice the language I've used in psychological speak, expository advanced organizer, is accurate. You don't want to use any of that sort of language when you actually use an expository advanced organizer. You want to use a language, journalistic language, and yours are great examples. Great examples. Cool. And I and I mean, this is an idea that comes out a lot in explicit direct instruction, which we covered in this podcast a few episodes ago. But basically, they say the, one of the first things you present in teaching is what they call a bulletproof definition. So you present the bulletproof definition, you get this, you read it, the students read it. They say it to each other. You then cold call students to then repeat it back to you. So that's that's in the classroom. That's how I use that stand first sentence or that bulletproof definition. I actually get students to kind of recall it, try to get it into long term memory a little bit before I then go on to the next section. Perfect. Just maybe have a a closer look at those stand first sentences in the newspapers and magazines that you read. The pithiest, with the simplest language, are in the Economist. Do you ever get Economist? A little bit. I've, I've read it from time to time, yeah. If you just get one and just study those, here's something I just picked up from a teacher. So there's a science, 
the big ideas of science, physics, P1, whatever that means. The universe follows unbreakable rules that are all about forces, matter and energy. Forces are different kinds of pushes and pulls that act on all the matter that is in the universe. Matter is all the stuff or mass in the universe. I'm not saying appropriate for this level of detail, but beginning to speak like, write like journalists. That's the experts. We should really learn from journalists. So this is great. I love that. And I love the I do, we do. So it's brilliant. So what I would do, graphically speaking, is you try to differentiate it by having different weights and italic. The I do, it looks quite dark. Have you made that bolder, slightly bolder? I have not, no. I think it's probably just the dot point next to it gives that effect. Okay, because it looks darker than the italic. That might just be a function of Google Docs. Okay, so generally, in the end result, I would have your stand first darker and slightly bigger. Okay. And then make the other less prominent, and then you'll have that orient the reader. You need to orient. I mean, an advanced organizer orients you. So when we're going to somewhere new and you have a map here, so it has to be a simplified map, you want a couple of reference points. There's a town hall, there's a church. So wherever you go, there's always a town hall and church. So when you get into the detail, they can, that, that, that stand first just stands out. It, it orients your thinking. That's it. Yeah, no, that's good. Just for listeners and for me as well, actually, could you just give a brief rundown of what an advanced organizer looks like? Well, advanced organizer is providing the learner with the higher order concept first. So you could say you're giving your novices who are encountering unfamiliar material a hat rack. Richard Saul Werman, the first information self-declared architect, calls hat racks as being the mechanism by which you can store your hats and scarves and gloves, which is to say the details. So you give framework first upon which the subsequent unfamiliar details can be placed. And it's the organized placement of it which creates meaning, which helps solidify in memory. So an advanced organizer can do that in in many ways. You can tell a story, you can provide a graphic organizer, or you can have an expository organizer, which is basically an explanation or definition. And I'm going to keep using the word stand first because it's another reminder to think like, learn from, and write like journalists. And you've you've done that brilliantly. It's great. All right. I wanted to talk a little bit now about the idea of recording and presenting ideas. So in in the book, you talk a little bit about sketch notes, and perhaps some people will be listening to this podcast and and trying to cap try to capture some of it in sketch notes, uh, or they may have gone to some conferences recently and captured them, or something like that. So. Just basic and broad brushstrokes to start off with. What is a sketch note and, and what are some of the common misconceptions about them, if there are any? Okay. You know, they've exploded sketch notes and I've got some important distinct. I think are important distinctions. One, is it live or have you redone it afterwards second? You know, a formal, not bound by now in the middle of the conference. The second one, is it for you or is it to communicate to others? So Mike Roder is the one who's probably most prominent in the sketch world world, and his sketch note handbook is really useful, and I think his work is wonderful. And he is the only one I know that explicitly 
and repeatedly talks about structure. He's very clear that his sketch notes will communicate. He does it for him, but he does it to communicate. Therefore, you have to follow basic graphic rules, which are cut, chunk, align, restrain. And he does that admirably. Now, I'm very wary of saying what I'm about to say because I people have been very enthusiastic of sketchnoting, and I welcome that, particularly people who feel reticent and are not doesn't have a lot of confidence with regard to their handwriting or their drawing, particularly. I don't want to dampen that. At the same time, I've seen sketch notes that teachers have done, which they've shown their children, and and I like visuals. I don't want to. I don't even want to look at them. They're just complete and utter mess. Everything too crammed everywhere. So if it's for you, that's fine. You do whatever you want to. But if it's a teacher, I think you may one be you may be putting children off, so they'll hate visuals and diagrams. Just too much, and there's no order. What you want to bear in mind, it sounds very boring. You need a grid upon which there'll be I mean, Mike Roder has some basic structures. You basically have long columns. Or you have boxes, or you have something in the middle and things coming off the side radially. Each of those elements need to have space around it. And what you want to see when you're reading it, you want hierarchy, always hierarchy. Newspapers and magazines, they use typography to represent hierarchy, which is what's the big one, what's the next big one? Or if you want to put it in terms of container, what's the big container? And what are the smaller container within it? And what's a smaller container within the smaller container? So everything is super and subordinate categorization. Back to Aristotle. That does need to be represented graphically. Now, when you do it live, it's really difficult because you don't know what the person is going to speak about. And often you'll be you'll be surprised to know there are some famous speakers who are wonderful speakers, but you can't note what they're doing because they don't have any order. They're just static. Where someone like Daisy Christodoulou. It's an absolute joy. She's so organized. I know, right? This is my proposition. There is an argument against it and for it. I'm going to show you and parallel the fors and against. And then at the bottom, I'm going to conclude. She basically makes evident because but so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had her in the podcast and it was outrageous how she was definitely the most clear you know, respondent to a question. I'd ask a question and say, well, there's three parts to that question. This part, this part, this part. I'm going to answer them in order. Bang. <laughs> I was just like, whoa, this is amazing. Just just fantastic. You won't get readers um, speeches like that generally. So it's live. If you're doing it for your children, I would not bother about making it look pretty. If you're going to do it for your children, first of all, capture as much as you can. Subsequently, in your own time, you cull it, what's important, and then make it, order it on your page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's either live or afterwards, and it's either for yourself or for somebody else. Now, I've, I've got another question about this because I think there's a really beneficial, like, generative effect to making a sketch note because I've, I've done it myself in the past whilst being at lectures, and I've found that I've actually, just based upon that, drawing a sketch note versus taking just word-based notes, my retention of the concepts and ideas and relationships between them are much stronger than if I'd have just kind of jotted things down. I guess one challenge I have is usually when I, if I want to remember something, I'll put it into some sort of spaced repetition software, whether it be Anki or Dendro. And it's harder for me to get from a sketch note to those word-based spaced repetition programs 
Vanify, for example, just open up Dendro, which is like I can take notes in and then it and then Dendro explicitly scaffolds me to over time to turn those notes into space repetition cards. So I guess I've always seen a trade-off in my note-taking approach where I can kind of get this stronger generative effect in the first instance, or I can have a clear, cleaner workflow into spaced repetition cards. What are your thoughts on that? I need to answer elliptically with regard to my own self because I, I don't force myself to do retrieval practice. If younger, I would, but, you know, just late, older and lazier. So what I find is that the sketch notes I do that are popular are more graphic and have images on it. If I take sketch notes to understand and remember the finer details, then I, I'll often not have hardly any drawings. What I tend to find is not so useful is to just have keywords. So what I tend to find is I'll do a mini sentence or a phrase and then I'll draw an arrow to the next significant mini phrase. So it's a non-linear arrangement of little phrases. And if I have time, I will put a word above those arrows and they'll be essentially because but so. This this and, or, or and, this and, then I might put them together, therefore. So to me, that's the best way of getting the argument. Otherwise, you're getting stuff down, but you haven't captured the argument. Nothing's thematic. Nothing's, nothing builds up. And to me, if you really want to understand something, it's still language. Only what I'm doing is the little bits are language, so they're sequential. But instead of all of it being sequential, that's why I think it's the best world. You get the details by having a phrase or a sentence, sequential to the meaning of it. Syntax does that. But then I don't continue. I then spatially organize these different mini phrases or sentences. And then the arrows, I explicitly make myself what the nature of that connection is. There will be and, there will be but, there will be because, so, or therefore. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that's an interesting distinction to hear from you. That's why because but so is really useful. And if I ever find, I'll have a search for that Australian argumentation software, you know, they long, they, they basically have um, evidence for rebuttal or justification. So there are some core hinge words which link up ideas. And that's why I really resonated. And I'm now going to read the writing revolution, but because so. There aren't many hinge words that join up our ideas. And so I that I maybe should write a blog post about the way of doing sketch notes that way. For me, it's far more effective. It's more intelligent because you need to identify the theme of the argument. The speaker may not be as effective as Daisy is doing so, but in there, in amongst the joke and the charisma and the stories, there is a simple this and this, therefore that. So don't do this. And identifying that. And those sentences, all that takes mental effort, as does not having a verbatim capture of what they of these little mini sentences are kind of like stand first. So the, the work is you're having to create them yourself. Summarize it quickly now, just there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, that's just given me the idea. Perhaps I should 
perhaps an activity I could do with my students is to either present them with a concept made, a concept map based upon all the stand first sentences that I've given them throughout a topic to really explicitly show the connections. Yeah. Often concept maps are too difficult to understand because the elements are too terse. A keyword. Mm. You know the concept, the keyword's perfect because it's all you need as a tag. You know all the, it's like an iceberg, you know all the bits underneath. But for the key, they just see the top of the iceberg. It doesn't make any sense. Whereas the Stanford sentences are far more meaningful. And then to organize, we should invent something together. It's called like the Stanford concept map. I like it. You heard it here, folks. Blog posts forthcoming. Yeah, it's great. Fantastic. I'll, I will try that with my class, actually. I've just finished a unit. I'll have a play. That sounds great. Slideshows and presentations. Any any quick tips for for people who are, I mean, I, I feel like we've, we may have covered some of this already because you talked about your own method of, of doing your book, which is basically fat marker, small post-it notes, list the ideas, organize them, chunk them, sequence them. Yeah. Before that, the, the big, strongest idea, recommendation I would have is don't start on the computer because you'll be thinking about colors, typefaces, or if it's on PowerPoint, you'll just be bullied by the bullet points. Mm. It bullies you, it shapes you, it orients you without thinking. So I'd get the ideas first out on in the way that you just described. And lastly, you decide what graphic format. And fundamentally, the biggest psychological problem you've got is the one that you had an insight about, and that's great. I've never heard anyone else understand that insight or notice it, which is you need to segment things. You can't have too much on a slide, and by segmenting it, you then transfer, you're into the transient information effect. That's the dynamic all the time for which there's no perfect solution, but you're always dealing with it, and the way you deal with it would depend on what you know of your audience. That's the biggest problem. Yeah, and, and the audience is comprised of many people with different amounts of background knowledge. Yeah. And therein lies the big challenge. Yeah, when you're training, you don't know at all what the audience knows. Totally. Yeah, as in when you're running a professional development session. Yeah, I've got no idea. Yeah, yeah, it's much, much trickier. Sorry, just lastly with, with the slideshows, one typeface, don't make it a serif typeface. And well, if you have, make it a block serif. You know serif? Tell me more. The bits on the end of a letter, you know, it's New Roman. Yep. So they were devised like that. So when they were carving in stone, they, they, they didn't have a corner where it just cracked. Oh. So they had this. Really? Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. But of course, digitally, even though well, the projections aren't very good, it, it's too hazy. But you can have a block serif. So a serif is, the, a, a serif is French, you know, the bit on the end. Instead of being gradually going off to a fine point, you can have like a block. Mm. So that's more suited to a digital resolution. Choose one typeface and choose one, possibly two colors, along with black. So just just moderate. And a grid, PowerPoint guides. PowerPoint guide, create a grid straight away before you do anything. Have a grid. I'll have to Google how to do that because I wasn't aware you could do that. You must be consistent. So don't get them to learn each time. Oh, is that the important word? You know, is what size? But your titles are always the same, and then your subtitles, same color. You, you have a rearrangement with a grid, but they don't have to learn the protocol on every new slide. Now, I mean, do you think PowerPoint is a good tool for teaching? Like, 
you know, I, I don't use PowerPoint myself because one, it ta- I find it too hard to reorganize the information when I'm shifting around ideas. It just takes way too long. I don't like the idea that, you know, when we go to the next slide, students have no way of looking back over the previous information. So, I teach off a Google Doc, which I also print out to kids and then they can flip back and forth as I'm talking. And I can also zoom in and out of different points or use a text box or a sticky note to kind of cover parts of the screen to direct students' attention. But you talked about visualizers earlier. We've talked about Google Docs. We've talked about PowerPoints. What have you seen as, as being helpful in terms of effectively using images in teaching and the technology that supports that? Well, I saw something 10 years ago. I've never seen it commercially. It was a room in Silicon Valley where the guy used something. It wasn't PowerPoint, but it was like it. As soon as he finished it, he flicked it. And it, it was on the wall, digital wall by the side. So you get over the transient information thing. So you just add. Now, 20 years ago when I used to train in schools, I used to have tables put around. So my screen was in the middle and almost like amphitheater-like, I had tables around it and I had them on end. And after a section, I'd had pre-existing posters I used to stick up, which was the representation of a couple of slides that I'd just done. So gradually, the audience, you gradually saw their past lined up there. Because it's all down to transient information effect. My experience was when I was at school, we had chalkboards, which were like the ones you see in American 50s or 60s films, you know, the whole length of the wall. I saw experts, unbelievable experts. So in chemistry and physics, I had teachers who could get a chalk and push it with different degrees of strength, meaning they could have variously spaced dots. You know. Yeah, dotted lines. And, you know, geometry, you use your arms as a radius, perfect circles. Now, a whole set of skills that we don't see now. The problem we have with writing on boards is the worst conditions for writing or drawing are the surface is slippery, whiteboard. There's no background structure, you know, like you see on notes, dots or squares, whiteboard, and you can't rest your hand on the board because it wipes it out so your hand is shaky, whiteboard. The very worst conditions, the very worst conditions. I heard someone using a visualizer and they used a dotted, I think an acetate or dotted paper such that the and then did their diagrams or writing facing the class. But the projection of their image was very clear, but it didn't pick up the dots. The students thought their teacher was absolutely masterful how they drew perfectly aligned squares or arrows or, or whatever. So that's a great trick. To, so when, when humans see something masterful, they're in awe, and they'd be in awe. I still remember my teachers who were brilliant at diagrams on the shortboard. Just in awe, I'd watch them all day long. So all teachers can be can look that masterful if they learn. I teach teachers how to draw a line, and it transforms everything they do to draw a line. You don't draw with your wrist, you don't draw with your elbow, you draw with your shoulder, and you start strong. You look at the point of destination, you go slowly, and the point of destination you finish. Boom! You don't flick. You just go straight line. And to give a little bit of class, like architects, when you draw a box. So a box is not one line with a with curves. It's four lines. You lift your pencil up each time, and you slightly cross over the joins, and then you get something that looks like an architect has drawn it. Makes you just you know one more, two seconds more, and if you have dotted paper as well, you'll look instantly masterful. 
Got any more tips? I like these. Those two are pretty practical. I'll, I'll be trying them on the whiteboard. This is the only way at best to explain it. Um, you can, in England, I'm using English money. You can go into a shop, although not now because there's shortage. You could go in and buy a piece, slice loaf, it'll cost you a pound. Or you can have an artisanal stone baked sourdough bread that'll cost you three. We love the artisanal, the handmade. In our digital world, we're bored with the digital world visually. Really works is to have the digital world and embedded in there is a hand-drawn diagram or handwriting. It just stands out. It resonates with meaning. The eye's attracted to it. So use that opportunity and make it stand out. So, so architects can draw like a CAD with a perfect straight line. Actually, they deliberately, I, I went on a course drawing for architects and I learned their secrets. One is you deliberately make your line slightly wavy, slightly shaky. It's still framed by your dots. So it looks, how did they draw that? Slightly shaky with the, with the, the corners just overlapping slightly. And it looks fabulous. It looks like an architect's drawing it. That's the skill. And there are many videos on YouTube on how to draw like an architect. And you'll see that, that and you think, oh, that's so. And the architects are the classiest graphic executors. There's no doubt about it. They're the best. They're the best. And then with your handwriting, if you can't print lowercase, never write lowercase because they're too untidy and you'll go quicker. You'll want, you'll feel the urge to, to speed up and you'll do your normal handwriting. And people have really, really horrible, ugly, ugly, difficult to read handwriting. Nearly everyone does. So I would use capitals. If you want to have a good style for handwriting, then on the web, you can still get examples of Christopher Jarman in the 1970s. He had a basic modern hand in which he identified 12 principles of good handwriting, whatever style. The three most important are all the uprights must be parallel. All the letters should be the same size. And the ascenders and descenders, if you do lowercase, mustn't be very tall or very low. And that complies with the evidence we get from different countries who create the typography for road signs, where immediate legibility is important. And they know they all have different typefaces, but they all have the same features, which is a lower ascender and a very shallow descender. And then it's just practice, just practice. That's great. So you spoke then, you talked about how it's tricky to run PDs because you often don't know the background knowledge of the people you're presenting to. I wanted to touch now on a really interesting idea that you presented in your book in relation to supporting teachers to improve their teaching practices. And this was the idea of visual coaching. Can you give listeners a bit of an outline of the idea of visual coaching? Yeah. In which I'm going to say something which may sound like an advertisement, but I can't help but do it. I've just finished a project with Tom Sherrington called the Teaching Walkthroughs, in which 50 teaching techniques that Tom has considered to be the key one for successful teaching, we have broken them into five steps. Five, because Nelson Cowan identified we have four plus or minus one chunks. So if a technique is broken down to more than five steps, there's a doubt whether the teacher can remember it all back in the classroom, within the hurly-burly of the classroom. So we've got five images with five visual descriptions. And why that's useful is a number of things. One is because over the last few years, we've had recourse to research and we've had principles. 
I think we're ready now to get down to granular levels of what it is we're talking about. I think the teaching profession suffers from professional amnesia. So one of the saddest things I ever see, it's touching, but it's sad, is when I get someone who's nearer my age, who's been around, you know, in, in the 50s, and even 60s, and then I teach them a technique and they go, oh, I used to do that. So they had a technique and they describe how successful it was. And they can't even remember a technique for themselves, which they knew was spectacularly good, and they forget it. So what chance we've got to remember other people's techniques? We don't have a repository. We don't have a mechanism to catch a teaching. And although some brilliant work has been done with Doug Lemoff with regard videoing, John Bransford's book of How We Learn cites a couple of evidences where the difference between an ordinary teacher or novice and an expert when they view something is that when they report back, rather like the police say when they ask witnesses, they report back a different scene. So generally, a novice, and there's some, been some work by Chi with regards to problem solving, is that novices will look at surface salient features, whereas experts look at the deeper underlying principles. Another problem we have with video or live observation, which is similar to the one we mentioned earlier, is that you get visual noise or figure ground. So a, an observer will be drawn to surface salient features like the teacher's characteristic, the clothes they've got on, the background, the colours, the display, how many chairs, uh, all over the place, whereas the expert could almost equivalent to having x-ray vision. They look beneath all that. Well, what visuals allow you to do, and by the way, the evidence is pretty strong that line drawings are the most effective way of communicating. So in terms of our perception, we don't identify objects by their color, their texture, or their pattern. We identify it by their, their outer line. So a line drawing is always more effective. So the images I did to coincide with Tom's descriptions were where I only drew what was pertinent to the idea of the diagram. So when I draw a, a, a student sitting, I don't draw the chair. There's no need to draw the chair. So Barbara Tversky says when you do a diagram or a visual of that sort, you need to edit out what's not relevant and even exaggerate and distort what is. So it comes really to the fore. You understand the meaning. So I picked up a word by my teacher in architectural drawing. It was verisimilitude what a great word verisimilitude lifelike qualities is the last thing you need the last thing you need you want unrealistic proportions ratios everything to understand the meaning so that's what the walkthroughs do so what it means is and other bits of research are really quite interesting is that um, i got this from the the heath brothers do you know the Heath brothers? Yeah. Yeah, Chip and Dan, yeah. Yes. When you read something or look at something which is action-oriented, your body has a visceral muscular response. And they cite some research where those people who read or watch something before they do the physical practice have got a way advantage because it's as if the body has rehearsed it. These visual depictions means that a teacher reads them, you're actually rehearsing them. For start, we've done all the hard work of get, 
is verbally and visually getting rid of all the clutter. Tom's a really brilliant writer, gets to the nub of things easily straight away. And I did the equivalent visually. So you really get it and it gives you a visceral experience. And with only five steps, it's really quick to learn, not just the what, but Tom manages to describe the actions and also give a reason why they're effective. So it resonates with meaning. Now, one of the things we need to avoid in observations or coaching is the gotcha moment. So I ask you to observe me, and we kind of have, we go through a, a charade of understanding, agreement, what you're going to look at. But actually, you're a human being, and you look, you'll notice whatever you notice. When we come to feedback, you will look at me in the face, because that's a protocol for respectful, adult, civil, professional communication. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And I'll feel, oh, 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 all those gotcha moments. I want to contrast it with this. I read a walkthrough, a visual a guide, five-step guide to teaching. And then after reading it on my own, I contact you or you contact me. We have a meeting side by side. I then show you this sequence and I describe it to you, which, of course, that reinforces my understanding. And then I ask you questions about it, the end of which I'm really clear that we have shared understanding. Now, when you observe me, either as a praiser, manager, or as a chum, as a coach, I'm really confident that I have framed your perception. There'll be many, many things in the classroom because it's, 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 it's multifaceted, but you are only looking through this lens, this framework. We've agreed it. I know you understand it because it's been in front of you. I explained it. Then at the end, when you give me feet, so that gives me a lot, a great deal of confidence. And I trust you. Now, when we, at the end, your comments will be behavioral. You can specifically say, at step three, you said you would do this and you did exactly. And also something else happened. Did you notice that? So it focuses back and the dynamic we adopt is we don't look face to face. So I picked this up 20 years ago by an expert in visual communication. He called it three-point communication. As I describe it, no one I've taught it to has ever heard the term, but they always remember it now because there's a term. But many people understand the dynamics and sadly they go, oh yes, I used to use that. So they found it successful because there's no word, it's not a thing. Because it's not a thing, no one writes about it, no one talks about it, and so it gets forgotten, professional amnesia. It's the phenomenon that when you, when you have a difficult conversation, and if, we're, and, we're, and if we're mature and honest, we have to acknowledge every feedback. Every feedback conversation is a difficult conversation. Yeah. But, so I would recommend you read this book, by the way. Thank you for the feedback. Yeah, it's all about how to receive feedback. We've all been looking on how to give it, on not how to receive it. Yeah, all the good is in how to receive it. But that's another story. Totally. What's the what's the author's name for people that want to follow? Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen, H-W-E-N. Thanks for the feedback. Cool. They were members of the Harvard Negotiation Project who co-authored difficult conversations, really know their stuff. So... If you face me in a normal conversation, it's great. You face me because that's how it happens. In a typical conversation, it's difficult because all your words and the more authentic and human you try and be, the more you lean in and give me eye contact, the worse it is. 
So it becomes more and more personal because all the words go to my face. And I describe it this way. 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, a French woman was the first person to have a face transplant. Her face was mauled by a dog and she had a full face transplant. After several years physical therapy, when she was physically okay, she then had to go into psychotherapy because clearly her sense of identity was completely changed because of her face. The face is very special. I, I, I joke that my wife has had her false hip put in, but you know what? She had no identity problems afterwards. She wasn't confused who she was, even though she had a new hip, but the face is different. So when words go into the face make an enormous difference, and we develop personal armor. So if you were my boss and you are giving me feedback, you know, I'll be saying, yes, thank you. I really appreciate it. I could even be really smarmy and say things like, ah, oh, feedback, breakfast of champions, and other smarmy things. <laughs> That's actually, inside, I'm saying you're a bastard, and it will sour the relationship. That's definitely what I was saying in my head when you were giving me feedback on my lesson earlier, Oliver. <laughs> so it's inherently difficult, and we really need to grow up and face it. We live in a Pollyanna land as if we all love feedback. We really need to, we're immature about it. We're unwilling to face up to it. Three-point communication just changes it. Now we go side by side. Straight away, I physically feel different. So two points communication is your head, my head. Two sets of eyes. Side by side, we bring the visual, which is the third point, and we talk via the third point. What that does is it puts, from your point of view, it puts distance between the message and the messenger. Previously, you gave me a difficult conversation. I, I made no distinction between your difficult feedback and you. I didn't like the feedback, therefore I didn't like you. They're the same thing. Side by side, we put, physically put a distance between it. And although for decades we've been talking about, it's not personal, it's, about, it's not about the teacher, it's about the teaching. That's Pollyanna, it's always personal. When you speak to someone's face, it's always personal, full stop. You may not want it to be, but we need to be grown up and, and own up to that. When we have particularly a visual step-by-step guide to these walkthroughs, then actually it's all about the teaching because I'm represented through these images and you talk about the teachers if that was me. And it's not directed to me. So I've, I don't know if it's the same phrase in Australian. I say face because it's directed to my face. I say face. And we, I objectify, it's out there. And then I can talk about the teacher that I've drawn as if it's me. Oh, yeah, the teacher should have, it's really significant. And of course, and all the comments are behavioral. They're based on what we've agreed. That seems fantastic. And what we've done with the walkthrough as well, they're built upon, we've, we've done it as, a, as an artful balance between, with my background of special education, particularly having been one of the last people in England to have taught direct instruction, you know, and, you know it's, at one end, there's specific, unbelievably precise instructions of what to do, whatever the context, which is overly optimistic of behaviorism. And on the other hand, we have people who I think use Michael Polanyi's, the philosopher's notion of tacit knowledge, as a wonderful excuse. Man, it's too tacit. Can't nail anything down. You know, it's, a, it's an artfully wonderful, lazy way of doing it. And I think we want something which is specific enough to be really, really practical, particularly in its visual de- depiction. All of it is based upon Tom has got a wonderful model called ADAPT, 
where this is a guideline, clearly you need to adapt it to your circumstance. That's the generative effect in which you then make tweaks. But we'll do that as my coach, we would do that there and then. I would say, I'm not sure, I think you need another step, or I think I need to do this instead of this, or the order. You would agree with me, whatever we do, our discussion, which is inherently useful, because inherently, what would, what after talking about behaviours, what emerges, if you ask me why I think that, is my theory of action emerges. There's your language from working with Vivian Robinson recently. Well, I've been in theory of action for a long, long time. Been around a long time, particularly the work of Peter Senji. We've got most of the stuff from Peter Senji learning organisations, 1990s, it's 30 years old. Education, we're the slow learners. We pick up things a long, long time afterwards. People do. So we would have a discussion based on behaviours and purpose. My theory of action would, would come out. We would then agree the steps or the tweaks. So I'd still be secure when I'm teaching because I know you're looking through that agreed framework. And at the end, I'm really secure and understand the feedback because that's what we agreed. There's tight integrity in our relationship. Essentially, we've got a contract, but a contract is visible, it's obvious. It's not in some pseudo-managerial, semi-legalistic language, which we think we're really precise. It's really, really vague. This mechanism is not ambivalent at all, ambiguous. We just know exactly what we're talking about. So the three-point communication with the visual depiction step-by-step seems to me to be a perfect resource for instructional coaching. And again, 20 years ago, I was reading about instructional coaching and no one took much notice. And Jim Knight has been doing it for a long time. And he says there are a couple of features that instructional coaches should have. One is they should read all the literature and they should summarize it into one page summaries. That's that's, that's never going to happen. We've done it for you. We've just basically for you. It's like the perfect resource for, for the instructional coach. And Sam Sims on his website has got some evidence where, you know, the balance really tips in favour of instructional coaching and not the executive life coaching, which is everyone loves, but for the most part, don't understand its origins. Its origins come from the human potential movement of which I was part. I was part of the movement from which life coaching actually began in the early 1980s. So uh, that's another whole story. Vicky Brock's history of coaching. I'd let you know what that means. In education, we don't know what the origins are. I think we talk about coaching without full understanding of its origins and how it actually took place and its purpose. We transported it from the human potential development that become very intrusive into the nicey nicey school atmosphere. It's not necessarily a very good fit. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I look, I'll have to get my hands on a copy of that book, Teaching Walkthroughs. That sounds really exciting. And, and I'm incredibly excited by this idea of visual coaching. You talked about the three main benefits there, kind of the fact that images help someone to physically prime themselves, or it's kind of that embodiment idea, I guess. You talked about the second benefit being that you're really establishing a really clear and shared framework for what is expected to be seen in the classroom. And the third idea incorporating that three-point communication and uh, separating the message from the messenger, I think it makes so much sense as a a perfect scaffold for instructional coaching. So I'm super keen to get my hands on a copy. I just had a point. Go on. Because as if I was down on videos, but actually the quality of learning or observing either something live or a video is incredibly enhanced if, first of all, you read a walkthrough. 
So if you and I read a walkthrough of a technique and we really understand it, how it could be tweaked in different ways. So in other words, we've got the skeletal version context-free. Then if we were to watch a video of someone doing the technique, we would have an expert's view. Oh, I see what's really going on. So on one hand, we would understand all the surface features of the busyness of a classroom, but we'd understand what's actually going on. We'd see the five steps. Here's a connection for you. The walkthrough is an advanced organizer. Exactly. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. That's a nice circle. Yeah, perfect. It is. It comes back nicely. All right. We might kind of wrap it up with the, before the closing questions, I might ask you one more. And this is on the contentious issue that's been quite contentious over, over a couple of years now. And Craig Barton tried to start a war in the UK around this. And this is classroom displays. What is the research and what is your thoughts after reading the research on classroom displays, Oliver? Well, I've got my own experience and I've got the learnings of the graphics world, who, by the way, have been into dual coding and cognitive load theory decades before education has, again, with no learners. They understand, and particularly if you go to an Ikea, they understand that a display is an indoor billboard. And so there's lots and lots of things wrong with displays that I see. They're too full and they're disorganized. And there's no pattern, there's no grid, there's no hierarchy, and the text is too small, and there's too many colors, and I can't see any theme, and I can't see what the message is. It's as bad as it could be. Uh, luckily, I didn't have to rely entirely on my own judgments. Salford University in Manchester in 2015 collated a couple of studies where they found that the typical overly featured displays weren't effective in promoting learning. and those that were more, you might say, appropriate for a classroom for children with autism were far more effective. They hedged their bets by saying Goldilocks, the midway, is, is best. Not too stark, not too full. But they didn't have any evidence for learning on that. They simply said on an emotional level, they, they thought that having a stark classroom is too forbidding, foreboding. So what I recommend is that you, with the permission of your caretaker, you create a grid for your display board and you put little pins at the top of the, or nails at the top of the side from which after you put your backing paper on, you use masking tape to create a grid. And then when you put your elements on there, they're nicely aligned. I also recommend that teachers learn to print far quicker than printing things off on a computer and sticking it up. Get a big fat felt tip very and with your grid lines if you draw from the shoulder, everything just basically, if you look at sign writing, it's just a downstroke. So, uh, so even a lowercase is down for the end, a quick slightly up round the curve and then down for the second leg of the of the end, of the letter N. And then in amongst all the other digital bits, it's quick, it stands out, it's effective, lots of white space and particularly hierarchy. When you glance, there's something called the glance test. You should look at display and immediately you know what's the important bits. So you can have children's work up there, but if you have children's work up there, you better make sure there's space around the display where they can go up close to read it. Because most people don't do that. If you can't get up close to read it, don't put kids' display up there as it is. Sure, get a piece of a kid's work, blow it up and make it big, and then annotate it with all the bits that are really good, and then change that every few days or week, and that's fine. That'll be really great. So indoor billboard is a good idea with a grid. And you can take the masking tape off. Yeah, that's practical. 
Is there anything else you wanted to cover before we go into closing questions? Well, I want to apologise to your readers because I've just bombarded them with words and ideas that are just my current obsession. Something I was interested in, actually. One final thing before we go into closing questions. There's a common thread, or there was a common thread that you kind of signposted at the start, and and this is really, you you mentioned Barbara Tversky a lot of times, and and this whole idea of thoughts as objects. To me, this idea didn't come out super strongly in the book. Perhaps I didn't read it carefully enough. But why is that, Oliver? Why was it a real prominent theme within this interview, and yet it it did not get come to me through reading your book? Because it's subsequent reading. Reading, I'd, Barbara Tversky's books came out later. I did mention that research in the Quantum magazine. Mm-hmm, he did. I mentioned, you know, do rats have learn left, right, left, right, or do they create a cognitive map? I mentioned it. But if I'd written the book again, I would have this whole thing of thought objects or of, we regard thoughts as objects or these image schemas. I would have that central. I would have that inform everything we do. So what I've done since the... I've written the book. I've written. I've read a lot. I've read the linguist George Lakoff, one of the first co-authors of Metaphors We Live By, his Philosophy in the Flesh, 400 pages of intricate linguistic analysis and reinforcing that idea and getting into more detail. And then his co-author, Mark Johnson, his The Body in the Mind. So demolishing much of Western philosophy and looking ever more examples of how we construct our abstract thought based on our early physical primitive logic central peripheral in out on top of more is higher the more i come across people's writing or speaking i i almost have a private chuckle as eloquent as as academic as they sound underneath it they've got these little toddler principles that they're working on it so the purpose of which I think thinking like that and knowing that, I think teachers can present the intellectual life as something which is every human can engage in and really enjoy. It's a manipulation of ideas. When I talk about manipulating, it's another spatial metaphor. We don't manipulate anything. It's a manipulation of ideas. And just like a child will manipulate objects and be thrilled to do it, and look at their look back at the results, and then go back and give feedback. Oh, I don't like that bit. They change it. We do that with thinking. We can thinking, and though doing so visually as objects means it's a. I think we're more likely to propel students to want to find those phrases and language with which to more fully and more persuasively describe what they've created to a another human. I did want to make one other connection as well. I mean, this this idea of kind of breaking ideas down into their primitive spatial elements is actually quite connected, in my mind, to Siegfried Engelmann's theory of instruction, in which he posits that any concept has a set of qualities and we need to identify the qualities that make up that idea or that concept and then compare and contrast various examples by pulling out those qualities. So, I mean, and that's something that you said you was right there at the start of your your teaching journey, working with Siegfried Engelman stuff, and now it's coming back again, but in a, in a different form and with different qualities than the qualities now being these primitive elements. I don't know. What do you think about that? 
I think it is that. Unfortunately, he writes in the most convoluted way I think a human being could ever write. And you wouldn't think when he's writing, he's talking about children in my school, severe learning difficulties. But he's getting at the key principles behind how human beings make sense of things. What's happened since, of course, is we've had research, we've had the neuroscience, the, the entorhinal cortex, we've had the linguistic analysis, we've had the philosophers, and we've had the research in body cognition and gesture, all coming together in a coherent whole to a unforeseen and unimaginable situation where that now is part of cognitive load theory. And do you know why that is? Because Sweller theorizes that our working memory is so short in the way that we know, and we can, so to speak, outsource it to our body. So we outsource information gathering and collection to our body, not at the expense of working memory, but in addition to your working memory. So that's one, only one aspect of why gestures and, and embodied cognition works. I don't think it's fully understood the other parts of thoughts as objects, but in the physical execution of that, that's now been incorporated in the cognitive load theory, which is a remarkable movement for something that first showed up in a linguist and a philosopher's book. So I have a kind of an unkind conclusion with that. However elevated the cognitive scientists are, I sometimes consider them just mere technicians. Now, the design of research is difficult, and you know they're really clever and they do what they do. But it was a linguist and a, and a philosopher through an act of imagination who considered the metaphoric use of language and discovered it, which formed a whole new part of cognitive science. So it's imagination. And Mark Johnson talks about imagination in the Immanuel Kant sense of not just some flight of fancy for literature, but actually saying Shakespeare is central, using it metaphoric, is imagination. So the whole idea of using physical objects and their spatial relationship as a foundation for our thinking is an active imagination because it's metaphoric. I guess what I was getting at in making that connection between some of the things you've been talking about today and, and Engelman's stuff is that I would love to see these ideas further developed about these kind of primitive objects and things like that, such that there's maybe a list of them or something like that. And then to really, and this is kind of what I was doing with the because but so example, trying to get us to dissect that, but take a whole heap of concepts and really dissect them in terms of these, these primitive objects or these ideas and try to work out, you know, because if we can, this is something I've been finding recently when I've been thinking about how best, quote unquote, to teach things, right? It all depends, or it doesn't all depend, but a large factor that influences how the best way to teach something is the actual structure of the knowledge in the first place how integrated it is, how deep it is, et cetera. So I'm very interested in what you've been talking about today because I think that it provides a potential framework to categorize knowledge in new ways and thereby through spatial representations come up with some, I'm reticent to say it, but I will say it, some formulas for if knowledge is constructed in this way, it can be spatially represented in this way and therefore communicated more clearly. And I think that Engelman did that really well with his ideas of qualities, but maybe didn't centre that research, his work in this same kind of potentially biologically programmed units that you're talking about when you talk about primitive objects. So I feel like there's a real 
you know, field of research that could open up there and some really interesting work that could be done. So me making that connection with Engelman was kind of a just a plea, I guess, for you to <laughs> to continue to explore this work and 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 me sharing a real excitement for what could potentially be contained within that. I'm entirely with you. That's just so wonderful to hear you say that. There are such lists of all the metaphors and schemas, and I've been promising myself, I've been so wrapped up with other projects, to write a whole series of blogs about it. And ideally, what you want to end up with is having subject specialists thinking, I can see how that's applied to all physics. I can see, and, and everything you said about getting to the structure of knowledge is the way in. And it will, all that, that knowledge, not only systematic in terms of teaching, but actually really accessible in terms of the learners. Yeah, that's a really exciting project. And I can see it's, it's the natural development, exactly so. So that's really a way to finish. That's fantastic. I do see it as a start. I wanted people with more time and knowledge and skills, intelligence than I have to just develop it. I feel that, you know, it's a lot to do on your own. It is a lot to do. Hopefully someone's listening who wants to take on a PhD or, or maybe even a lifetime of research to explore that field. No, I really want to acknowledge you. It's, it's, it's been really great. And it's lovely to hear these thoughts being reflected back. Well, we might, we might just have some closing questions now, Oliver, if that's all right. So the first one is, what advice would you give to your first-year teacher self? What something Tom Sherrington says a lot, just, and that you've been demonstrating, just check that what I've said has been understood. Just check standing. That's, you know, I ask everybody this question, what advice? And I honestly think that is one of the most important things that first early career teachers need to do much more. And I need to continue to do much more myself. So, love it. Absolutely love it. You're obviously incredibly well-read, Oliver, and you're fascinated by ideas. So, what is, what's your information diet like? Before the internet, I used to spend my life in libraries and I used to just find almost anything and trying to connect it up. And I used to be addicted to, and I think I've wasted years reading management books from America. Okay. You know, you know skip things. I still read things like Fast Magazine. I still read, well, I read, I still read magazines, consume magazines all the time because I'm always looking for ideas for display and how they communicate. So my information diet is I've got a whole load of graphics books that I read. I have a lot of time and I try and convert them to education education books, you know, there's a plethora of going out. At the moment, I'm trying to really nail down my understanding of the philosophy and linguistics of image schemas. Yeah, that's fascinating. My is to limit what I'm reading. I used to skim read and read, you know, I used to read two books a week and, you know, I, I read too much. I read too much. I want to reread what I read. I want to reread what I'm reading so I could retrieve it and explain it without the book there. And with this whole idea of image schemas and no one else is pretty much doing it in education, I feel as if I ought to be more responsible and really get to grips and I could understand and explain every aspect of it, the linguistic and the philosophical aspects. That sounds great. That sounds fantastic. I mean, you've kind of answered this question already, but what are you currently excited about? Well, two points. One is developing this so we better understand dual coding. You know, and I try and give positive responses to, I've become the agony art on Twitter for people's graphic organizers and, and, and such like. And I try and be very enthusiastic. And I am because I'm bowled over by how great they are. And at the same time, some people can be a bit snotty and say, oh, people just stick icons in front of everything. And I understand that. You know, the discovery of the, the noun project and two million icons. And I, and I can understand that. But I try not to put it down. I think it's a step towards 
going from my dual coding story number one. And so my task is to get people to understand dual coding story number two. It's not the visual, the spatial aspect. Visual is just the means whereby. When you think, understand it's a spatial, you then quickly merge into what thoughts are objects and we organize them spatially. So that's my one task. The other task is highly related, of course, is the work on developing the walkthroughs. In addition to the book, Tom and I are working on a series of PowerPoint slides so that we're selling a package and so that schools could create their own in-house training. So Tom will create, all, so we'd have all the graphics, so they'd look good because the graphics look great. I shouldn't say that, but they do. <laughs> and they would have teacher notes with a little booklet that Tom's creating. And at the same time, we're also creating a Kindle version whereby if you open up Kindle on the app on a mobile, you'd have it in color, and it would be the equivalent of having a mobile app. But we wouldn't have to keep updating it because apps are really expensive to keep updating. So you would have it at your personal moment. You could learn a technique while you're having a cup of coffee. And that would be sold as a package. So the book, the PowerPoint slides, and trainer trainer notes, as long and along with the the Kindle app, I'll call it. And then we actually have promised two more versions of the book. So at the moment, we've got someone who's very well known with regards English and vocabulary, wants to hog walkthroughs volume number two to look at reading and writing. So we make this in on particular areas. So I think I think the teaching world will really take to the idea that after the principles and the research, here's actually what you do, and in a way that is really quick, magazine-y, but not dumbed down. Totally. And those, that walkthrough idea is, is super exciting. Any last calls to action for listeners, things you'd like them to go away today and do? A number of things. When you work on a board or your visualizer, I like to practice writing, drawing us a line, firm, straight lines, clear, legible writing, and practice buy a notebook with squares or dots and get that to frame neat aligned text. Go onto PowerPoint and learn how to use the guides and create create a grid and look at newspapers and magazines and perhaps get a felt tip and draw the grid. Notice the grid underneath it. And then you can see if professionals are doing it, perhaps and they are professionals in communication, we can learn a lot from them. And perhaps follow me on Twitter. And not just for what I do, but you'll notice that you'll see what teachers are currently doing with graphic organizers and diagrams. And you see it's just a world away from what they did a year ago. Just phenomenal difference. And every teacher can do that. And enjoy the acknowledgement that we're all information designers, so let's learn how to do it. That's a great place to finish it. Bring it right back to the start with that idea of we're all visual designers. Oliver Caviglioli. I can't thank you enough for today. It's been um, three hours that we've been chatting for. It's been incredibly stimulating. We have covered so much ground and it's been an incredible mix of just intensely theoretical ideas. And I've been excited by some of the new ways that we've been able to connect them and some of the connections we've been able to make, as well as linking through to classroom practice and ideas as simple as how to draw a straight line on a whiteboard. I've been incredibly excited about our chat. I hope it's been really invigorating for listeners as well. And I look forward to your future work. It sounds like you've got some incredible projects on the go, some that I'm particularly excited about. And all the best. It's been an honour. Thank you very much. Great chat. And great to know you as well. Indeed. See you all. Carry on. Great work. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Oliver Caviglioli. 
As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of the link to John Cat Educational that in tandem with the discount code of ERR30 will get you that 30% off all books in their range. And if you'd like to help the eTrailer podcast to keep on keeping on and receive my summary of Oliver's insights throughout our discussion today, please go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to make a small monthly contribution to support the show. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or as always, if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.